Good morning, Chapel Point. It's great to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from Cedarville University down in Cedarville, Ohio. Uh, we, we stand for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, and I would covet your prayers in this cultural climate. We believe that God created the world in six literal days, rested on the seventh, that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and that brought sin to all of us. And that Jesus had a plan and that he would come and live a perfect life, die on a cross, go to the grave, get up out of the grave three days later, ascend to the Father, and that he's coming again. And that because that's true, it changes everything. Now, that doesn't really go real well in our culture these days, so we covet your prayers as we stand firm for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we've got a table out back. If you want to learn more about our College Now programs or college programs or anything like that, we've got some people that would love to talk to you, but I'm not here to talk about that. Do you know what I get to do this morning? I, I am a sinful human being that has the privilege of being able to talk to you about the God that I serve. And I get to talk to you about some things that are really difficult to comprehend in our minds, but that once we even grasp a small part of what God has revealed of himself to us, it changes the very way we live our lives. I'm here to talk to you today about a complicated doctrine that has very practical application, and I'm here to be able to talk to you in such a way about what God has revealed to us that it's incredibly exciting, and I'm going to go incredibly fast over a whole lot of material. So buckle up, get ready, get your notes ready, get your phones ready if you want to take pictures of slides that we're going to show here on the TV screen, and I want to start it off in this way. Have you ever had anybody ask you this question? Do you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible? I've had friends, I've had church members at other churches, I've had people who received that knock on the door, that received that question from groups that might have other revelations other than just the Bible that they refer to, that ask that type of pointed question. And if you're not prepared to answer that question, your mind begins to race and you begin to think, well, I know it's in there somewhere. I've been taught ever since Sunday school. I, I know that it's somewhere back there. What's the verse? Where does that come from? You must be prepared to answer that question and other questions like that question. So today we're going to look at what the word says. The word Trinity was actually coined by a man named Tertullian. He wrote and was born around 155 AD. He coined that term because what he was trying to do is encapsulate in one word what the text of Scripture actually teaches. It became really popular because another one of our church fathers way back in history named Augustine wrote a book called De Trinitat, the Trinity, on the Trinity. And so we have come to know and talk about God in terms like Trinity. But the word Trinity is not necessarily in the text of Scripture. So the most important thing for us to know is what does the text of Scripture say about our God? So I have a definition for you. What is it that we believe that is the orthodox definition of what who God is. What has he revealed to us about himself? We believe that there is one God, one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm, I'm going to spend the next 30 minutes or so unpacking this definition, laying out for you exactly different scriptures that defend this, that present this. So don't take this 
definition for granted. I want you to look at the text. I want you to look at the scripture verses I'll put on here because we're going to be going to so many different places and understand for yourself, is this what God teaches? Is this what God revealed himself through the Holy Spirit, through men, to write his revelation of who he is to us so that we in our finite minds can catch a small glimpse of an infinite God to be able to worship him as he truly is, not creating a God in our own mind that we can fully understand. Because if we in our finite minds can fully understand who that person is, that person is not the infinite, eternally existing creator God. So we are trying this morning in our finite minds to grasp a glimpse of an infinitely glorious and great God so that we then can worship him in spirit and in truth and live our lives in a worthy fashion for him. Three basic points we're going to walk through this morning. Number one, there is one true God. We'll walk through that. The text is going to demonstrate that to us this morning. Number two, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equally God. All three of those are God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I'm going to show you a couple of verses. We don't have time to go through all of them, but we'll show a couple of verses that defend each one of those. And then we're going to look at how the Bible presents the three-in-oneness, how the Bible presents the Trinity, how the Bible presents the unity of those three persons in one God. So we begin with point number one. There is one true God. Deuteronomy 6.4. It says this, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I've got this up here for you, and, and if you're writing, if you're taking notes, uh, this word ehad is the original language of the word one. So why do I have that word up here? Because what I want you to understand is even back in Deuteronomy, when we're reading this text and we're reading it in our English, it doesn't encapsulate the full revelation of what God is showing to us. In the original language, that word, the Lord your God is one, is ehad. Now, that same word is used in the Old Testament when he says that, that man and wife will come together and they will become one flesh. That word one is the word one for a complex unity. Now, what is the Trinity if the Trinity is not a complex unity, that we have one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? So we see that there is one God. We know that there is one God that we worship, but this is a complex unity. Jesus repeats this in Mark 12, 29. In Mark 12, 29, he says, Jesus answered the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now, this is called the Shema Israel. This is a really important verse through all of ancient Israel. We have one God. James 2.19 says it this way. In James 2.19, it says that you believe that God is one. You do well, but even the demons believe and tremble. Now, there's an important part for us here. It's a completely different side of the story. It's a completely rabbit trail here. But, but James tells us that you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. Now think about what that's saying to us for a second. That for us to believe that there is a God, that a God exists, but maybe we haven't truly repented of our sins and turned from our ways and put our faith and trust in that one true God, to believe a set of facts is not to be saved. Even the demons who rebel against God's authority believe in the set of facts that there is one God and that that one God exists. If you believe God exists, but you're not worshiping, you're not living your life for this God, you haven't turned from your own sinful ways of putting yourself upon the throne of your heart to put God upon the throne of your heart, then just believing a set of facts does not save you. 
Following Jesus Christ is not just I can answer these questions or I answered a question or prayed a prayer or came down and walked an aisle and turned in my card. We give our lives to serve the King. We are servants of the true God. And that is what saves us. Even the demons believe this and tremble because they know it's true. Our God is one. All right, we move to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are equally God. Now, God the Father, throughout church history, this is not debated. It's all throughout Scripture. It's everywhere. Just think about how Jesus taught us to pray. Matthew 6, 9. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 9, He said, Our Father who art in heaven, right? You memorize this prayer. You've learned this prayer. You understand that Jesus taught us how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is the very way he taught us to think about the concept of God. In the Gospels alone, Jesus refers to God over and over and over again. In the Gospel of John alone, it's about 110 times, depending on which translation you utilize, that Jesus talks about God as being the Father. And he talks about the Father and I are one, too, which demonstrates that unity. But he's referring to him as Father. So we understand the, the God, the Father, God, the Source, God, the Sending One, that that's how he's, he's presented to us. So I've got a couple of verses here that you might not have thought about with God the Father. Think about Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now this is a great verse because this jumps ahead to when we start talking about the three in oneness, that this includes the spirit, it includes the Lord, which is Jesus, and it includes God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God, the Father. 1 Peter 1, 2. It's another verse that you can point to that does the exact same thing. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. See what's happening here. You read this verse, and as you're trying to put together what do we believe, what do we think, you see this and you go, wait a second, there's God the Father, there's the Spirit, there's Jesus Christ. This is why the word Trinity comes up. This is how our understanding of who God is as he reveals himself comes up. It is God the Father who sanctifies us through the Spirit in obedience to Jesus Christ who is the Lord. So God the Father. I'm I'm not going to spend a ton of time on God the Father. That's not really a debated section. So let's move to Jesus the Son. This is crucial. We'll come back to application. This is crucial even for your salvation. If you don't understand, know, and believe who Jesus is. So there are four main Christological passages. We don't have time to go through all four of those main Christological passages. But you've got John 1. You remember John 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Explains a little bit about who Jesus is. You move to Philippians chapter 2. So you can write that down. We're going to look at that one briefly. Colossians 1, we're going to look at just a snippet of that. And then you move to Hebrews 1. I think you guys will be studying that later this year as well. So those are your four main Christological passages that we typically refer to. And I'm going to take us to two of those four this morning as we look at who Jesus is. Is Jesus God? And one of the clearest ones to go to is Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, you could go all the way back to verse 5 where it's talking about having this mind which is in Christ Jesus you know the passage. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. He, he came to serve us and humbled himself to obedience, even to obedience to death on the cross. And then this is what it says. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about what this verse is saying to us. And we come from the presupposition that Scripture is God's revelation. So God, being infinite, almighty, creator, outside of all that we see or exist, beyond what we see or exist, revealed himself to us as our creator to let us know who we are and why we're here. So his spirit worked through men to write down, this is who I am. And we have that revelation in the book that we call the Bible. And what he tells us is that in Philippians chapter 2, that every knee will bow one day at some point in time. All of us, all principalities, all powers, all political parties, all judicial branches, everywhere, everybody will bow one day on a knee and they will say that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, are you going to bow in this life and humble yourself and repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in God so that you then can receive the grace and mercy of the cross applied to your account so that you can be reconciled to your creator and serve him now, live with him forever? Or one day are you going to bow the knee because he's almighty and he's glorious and he's God and you have no other option and you are separated from him because you have rejected him for all eternity into an eternal torment that was meant for the devil and his demons. One day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. And what will they confess? Jesus Christ is Lord. We could spend the next 30 minutes on that. But we look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Look at what this says about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. If you've done your catechism, if you've done your theology, if you've studied, where does God exist? God is everywhere. What is God like? God, God is the spirit. He has no body like we do. God, God is all. He is everywhere. He has no body. So what is this verse saying to us? This verse is saying to us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus humbled himself, was born of a virgin as a man so that he could be our ultimate kinsman redeemer, so that he could be the greater Boaz, the greater kinsman redeemers we read about in the book of, Luke, of Ruth. So that as being one of our kinsmen, he could take our place to redeem us from our penalty of sin on the cross and take our place so that we are then united with Christ. That New Testament uses that language, united with Christ, so that when God looks down, he no longer sees me and my sinful flesh. He sees Christ and his righteousness. So I am clothed in Christ's righteousness. The image of this invisible God is Jesus, who came and took on that flesh to die to reconcile me to my creator. And it says, for by him, for by by this Jesus, all things were created. Wait a second, where was Jesus in Genesis? He was there. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It talks about the Spirit hovering over the waters of the deep. There's a glimpse there that we see of the Spirit. And it says that God spoke and all of these things happened. Now, why did God not snap his fingers? Why did God not... You realize he's not a human, so snapping his fingers wouldn't necessarily... But you get what I'm trying to say here. Why did he not do it in a different way? 
is because he used the words. He spoke creation into existence in six literal days and rested on the seventh. Not because it took him six days to do it, but because he was presenting a pattern for us. He was presenting that pattern forward for all of us to understand that he's revealing something about himself. So then we look, at, we look at this and we say all things were created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is Jesus. Jesus is the one we're going to bow down and we're going to call Lord and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because he is everything. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So then when you glimpse into John 1, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and we understand that that's going to talk about the Word being Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, oh, this whole grand narrative of the Bible is one story. It's how God created it. It's how we messed it up. It's how Jesus redeemed us so that we could be reconciled to it. And it's how God is coming again to recreate everything and make all things new. Jesus is God. There's another passage I like to look at. It's got Thomas in the name of it. And, and so my name's Thomas. But it's not in a really good light because it's doubting Thomas. You... So, yeah, we all, we're all messed up, right? So think about doubting Thomas. It's in John chapter 20, verses 27 through 29. You think about doubting Thomas. Thomas says, prior to this, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe unless I can put my fingers into his hands, thrust my fist into his side. Jesus is not present during this time, by the way, but Jesus is God, so Jesus knows everything. All of a sudden, he appears later on, and he's there with Thomas. And what does he say to him? Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Let me put a comma right there. If you're here this morning, and you have never fully repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you're not following this God, I would say maybe, maybe this is for you this morning. Do not disbelieve, but believe in the God who has revealed himself to us and redeemed us with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can be reconciled to your creator. Anyway, he says to him, Thomas, answered him, my Lord and my God. Okay, now, don't read the rest of the verse. Pretend it's not there. If Jesus is just a prophet, if he's just a man, and Thomas bows down before him and says, my Lord and my God, what is the right response? It's the response of Paul in the book of Acts when they worshipped him after the snake bit him and it fell off and he didn't die. He goes, no, 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 I'm just a man like you are. But Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 I'm just a man like you are. What does Jesus respond to this worship? It says, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? But blessed are those who have not seen me and who have believed. Jesus made radical claims to be God. And that's why they crucified him. That's why they accused him of blasphemy. They understood the claims that he was making. He was claiming to be God. He was accepting worship. He was performing miracles. He was forgiving sins. And the response to that is, who can forgive sins except God? And Jesus says, yeah, you finally got it. That's who he is. Jesus claimed to be God. Remember the transfiguration? The disciples go up 
and all of a sudden there's, there's Moses and there's Elijah and there's Jesus. And, and the disciples still don't get it. They still don't understand it yet. Moses, the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament, Elijah, one of the great prophets, Peter saying, let's build three temples, three tabernacles. But the whole point of the transfiguration is when it shows Jesus, and it says Jesus' clothes became white, and he shone white, and it was whiter than anything that could happen in this earth. We can't create this kind of white light. And God the Father from heaven above says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What's the point? The point is that Jesus is the greater Moses. The point is that Jesus is the greater Elijah. The point is that Moses and the first five books of the Old Testament pointed us to the coming Jesus. That all of the prophets pointed us to the coming Jesus. And the point in the transfiguration is to say to those disciples, Here he is. This is the coming Messiah. This is the one that you have been waiting for. This is the one that will redeem you from your sins. The kingdom is here. Just not the kingdom they expected. The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit truly God. There's so many verses we could go to. I'm going to pick two for us this morning to look at. John 14, 6. John 14, 6 says, And I, the I here is Jesus. So that's in brackets. Because again, this verse shows us the Trinity. It's all throughout the Bible. It's so in God's revelation that it just pops out, even though the word may not be there. It says, And I, Jesus, will ask the Father... Okay, well, this goes right back to what we've already talked about. And he will give you another helper, Alice, we'll come back to that, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm going to ask God the Father, and God the Father is going to send another helper. Now, that word another, I'm going to take just a moment. Because that word in the original language, the Greek in the New Testament, as it was written, is alos. There are two words in the Greek New Testament that could have been used for another helper. And it matters here. So I don't normally talk about Greek or Hebrew in context of this nature, but this one matters. There's two words in the Greek that could have been used. Alos and then heteros. Heteros, we understand because we recognize that in the English language because a heterosexual is somebody who's attracted to somebody of a different sex. It's another kind, but it's different. And the word alos is the same kind. It's another of the exact same kind. And so what this text is saying to us is that Jesus says, I'm going to pray to the Father, and the Father's going to send another of the exact same kind. Well, what's another of the exact same kind of Jesus? It's another part of the Godhead. It's another person of the Godhead, the Spirit. And you say, well, why did it have to happen that way? Well, think about this. We should be thrilled that this happened. Because if there were one Jesus, one physical Jesus, and all of us had to try to gather around the one physical Jesus, how are billions of Christians going to be able to gather around one physical Jesus? But Jesus says, no, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to ask the Father, and the Father's going to send you another helper. And that other helper is the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of truth. It's that Spirit that lives within us now. So that just as there was the Old Testament tabernacle, now our bodies are that tabernacle. And Corinthians talks about our, the, the temple of our body as the inner holy of holies because the Spirit of God, if you are a believer, lives within you. So we have the Spirit with us daily, rather than Jesus walking beside us, and we should be thrilled for that. The Spirit of the living God is with us that we can cry out every morning, God, help me. 
I know how fallen I am. I know how bent to do things that are bad I am. I need your spirit to help me. I need you to help me to think better thoughts. I need you to help me to live in a better way. Lord, I need the help of your spirit through your word to guide my life. That spirit, if you are a believer, lives within you. That's an incredible realization that changes all of life. There's an incredible power that we can lean to in humility asking for help because God has sent the Spirit to live within us. There's another verse. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. Peter said to Ananias, you remember the context here, Ananias? They had gone, they had sold their property, they had taken the money, they had brought back some of the money, they had lied and said they gave all the money, but they didn't give all the money, they only gave some of the money, which again shows just how sinful all of us really are. And here it says, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So, lie to the Holy Spirit, you get that, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You owned it, you could do whatever you wanted to with it. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but lied to God. You see what's happening here in this verse, right? It's just a verse. It's just written. It's just about a story. It's just about a narrative. But you have lied to the Holy Spirit, but you have lied to God. You see, even the basic correlation when we read Scripture and we start digging into it to say, Okay, God, what are you revealing to us about yourself we, we start understanding that theologically he's saying to us, there's God the Father. God the Father is the source. He's the sender. He's the one who sends the Son. The Son then is sent. Jesus the Son is Lord. We all will bow. We all will confess him as the ultimate Lord. Jesus ascends back to the Father, and there's another helper of the exact same kind that is sent that lives within us, and this is the Holy Spirit. So the Bible also presents the three in oneness of God. There are so many verses we could go to, but we'll just look at a few real quick. You go back to Genesis. Genesis 1.26, then God said, God singular. English, singular verb, subject verb agreement. You understand that? It's singular. God said, singular verb, let us, plural, make man in our image after our likeness, our plural. There's hints in the plural of majesty. There's hints in the language used even in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.22, the Lord Yahweh, singular, God, Elohim, is plural, with a singular verb said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, plural, in knowing good and evil. Isaiah 6, 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I, singular, send, and who will go for us, plural? Then I said, Here am I, send me. All throughout there are glimpses of this. And then we move to the New Testament. And one of the most famous ones in the New Testament is the Great Commission. And when we think about the Great Commission, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You have all three there present in the name, singular, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. If you look at the epistles, all throughout the epistles, these names are used. We can't list them all. We don't have time. I'll give you a couple just so you know kind of what to look for. Romans 15, 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. The priestly service of the gospel of God. That's the Father. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
three different persons, three different roles, and yet presented over and over and over. And in so many prayers at the end of so many books, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Okay. That's flying. So why does it matter? What does this mean to me? Why do I need to care about all of these type things? So practical application. First of all, theologically, this is important. Who's God? If this is the God that created me and has given me my life, and my life then is a stewardship, not an ownership, I need to know who I'm going to have to give an account to and give a report to. And so theologically, this teaches us about the God that created us. It allows us to worship the God in spirit and in truth because we know who he is. We know what he is teaching us. We know what he wants from us. This is so important because this affects the doctrine of salvation. It affects, are we even saved? Who is Jesus? If Jesus is not God, then Jesus is not the Savior. If Jesus is not human, then Jesus has not been our kinsman redeemer. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he has come to this earth to reconcile us in our sinful rebellion to the creator that we have rebelled against. That is the heart of salvation. If you don't understand who God is, you don't understand what God has done, then your very soul and eternity is at stake. We've got to have the understanding of the atonement and salvation. Theologically, it's important. There's another thing we often overlook here that I would call for a practical application for all of us. Number two is the community. Think about the Trinity. God has existed for all eternity as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God has existed for all eternity in community. And then God creates us, and when God creates us, what is it that God says about us? After he created Adam, he said, it is not good that he is alone. And so then he created Eve as well. God has created us for our community. And the sooner we recognize and understand that the devil wants us alone and isolated and in our own funk, making ourselves our own God, isolating ourselves off from everybody else, but God has created us to be in community. It's one reason the local church is so important. It's one reason that your small groups are so important. It's one reason that those friendships with fellow believers are so important because God has created us for a community. You cannot thrive in the Christian life unless you are plugged into a good, solid Christian community. God provides us with that example. God, God didn't need us. It's not like God was lonely up there and said, oh, I'm going to create a bunch of humans down here so that I will have fellowship. No, God had perfect fellowship. And he created us anyway, knowing that we were going to mess stuff up, knowing that he was going to have to redeem us. He still created us, which demonstrates another point about this community is that the Trinity teaches us about love. There is a perfect bond of love within the community. So let me say to you this morning that God defines love, that God is love, that God in his trinity then has taught us about perfect love. And so if you're here this morning and the devil pops those lies into your head that says you're not good enough, you're not loved, you're not worth it, you're never going to make it, those are all lies of the devil. And we take the lies of the devil and we replace them with the truth of God's revelation. And what God's revelation says about us is that each of us has been created in the image of God, that each of us has value and worth because Jesus died on a cross for our sins. Each of us has been redeemed. And if you are a believer of Christ, you have been a 
adopted into his family and that you are a son or a daughter of the king and that God loves you. So when the devil brings up those lies of you're not loved, you're not good enough, you'll never be fully accepted. God knows you. He knows all of your mess. He still loves you. He still accepts you. He still died for you. He still redeemed you. And he's still going to glorify you one day. Those are lies of the devil. Put them out. Trinity teaches us about a perfect love. The Trinity also teaches us about equality and difference. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all perfectly equal. Three different roles. Jesus comes, he says, The Father has sent me. He says, I and the Father are one. He humbles himself to the point of obedience, even to the point of death on a cross a humiliating death on a cross. So for us, sometimes we, in our prideful arrogance, start thinking, I'm, I'm above this. We start thinking, I shouldn't serve others in this way. And one of the lessons we can glean from the Trinity is that we can be equal in substance and essence and we can still serve others and that doesn't demean me in any way if I seek to serve you, if I seek to serve the lost, if I seek to serve others. All of us have an authority over our life. All of us give account to that authority in some way, in one fashion or another. And we need to recognize that that's okay. That doesn't mean I'm not equal. We can be completely equal and yet we can be different. Some of you have gifts I'll never have. That's okay. We're equal. But God has given us different assignments, different roles, different ways to serve him. And my job is not to try to be like you or be better than you or do what you're supposed to do. My job is to simply do what God has called me to do because I am a servant of the king. I have a shovel and I'm supposed to dig my hole. And I just keep digging my hole and worrying about digging my hole well for the master. And I don't worry about digging your hole. You dig your hole and we can all be equal and we can all serve King Jesus together. And we'll all do what he asks us to do. And as we seek to serve others, it'll keep us from getting prideful and arrogant. And in our humility, we'll please the king together in community in love and we'll have a blast doing it there's one other way that this is important for us it's even in how we pray have you ever thought about it our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name Jesus taught us to pray our father John 14 14 says ask anything in my name and I will do it and then Ephesians 6, 8 and Romans 8, 26 says, we pray through the power of the Spirit. So we pray to the Father. Father, I'm asking this. I'm asking this in the name of Jesus whose blood has cleansed me and allowed me to tear the veil so that I can come directly to you. That I can pray directly to my Father through the power of the Spirit that lives within me. The Trinity. Try to explain it completely you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it, you'll lose your soul. Oh God, we can't comprehend you. We are finite human beings and we just don't understand. But God, we know that you have revealed yourself to us and that you are a great and awesome and merciful God. And so in humility this morning, we bow before you, we submit to you, we humble ourselves before you, and we worship you as the one true God, the God who has revealed himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For God, you are worthy of our worship. Lord, help us to serve you and serve you well as faithful stewards of the King. 
It's in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray.